Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in partnership with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. In 1987, Chris Stowers ditches his dull job in the UK and embarks on a trip throughout the Asia-Pacific, following many other adventurers traveling with just a backpack and a minuscule budget in what he calls the golden age of travel. In his many adventures around the region, Two particular stories stand out enough for Chris to turn into a book, Boogie Nights. The first is his encounter with an older German woman in the Himalayan mountains, with a penchant for flirtation and teasing. The second is a maritime journey from a remote Indonesian island to Singapore on a wooden sloop and a rowdy and raucous French crew. Chris Stowers is a photographer and reporter who has traveled to over 70 countries around the world. His work has appeared in publications like Newsweek, Forbes, and the New York Times. His journey on the sloop led to his first story and photos being published and began his career in photography. Today, Chris and I talked about his journey, both in Southeast Asia and the Himalayas, and this golden age of travel. So, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about Boogie Nights. Um, perhaps let's start with why you went on this journey in the first place. Why did you leave the UK and kind of what pushed you on this adventure? Well, thanks for inviting me, Nicholas, for a start. <laughs> it's great to be here. Um, it's a long time ago, 35 years. I was just thinking about it the other day. And, um, and yet it seems like yesterday. Um, I was only, actually, I have to remind myself, I was only 19 20 years old at the time when I left home so when you say uh, like a, I had a boring job I was leaving I was actually a motorcycle dispatch rider which was quite an exciting but a dangerous and a dead-end job so I think that's what I was leaving and uh, the economic depression of England at that time um, the sort of certain conformity uh, all my friends were settling into jobs up in the city in London and uh, they come from England um, and I just felt something inside me felt like I don't want to go that way. Surely there's there's something more in life. And uh, in fact, my father had been born in Africa, and, and his father had been born in Africa before him. Uh, they were English, but uh, due to um, Rhodesia, uh, Zimbabwe now being part of the British Empire, they they lived there as British citizens. And I had heard all these stories my grandmother used to tell me, and I thought there's a big world out there. I I, I think I want to see it before getting a proper job and so I sold my motorbike and uh, bought a one-way ticket to I think it was to Karachi in Pakistan and set off from there um, and adventures followed that's the that's the short that's a short story for how I got away so why did you kind of split your book into these two different threads and then the book kind of jumps from from one to the other the first is kind of this this trip in Tibet and Chengdu, and then the other bit is this kind of maritime voyage to Singapore. But why did you kind of structure your book in this way? Yes, I, I was 
wondering how it would work actually um in my mind i remembered these two particular treks and i consider the sea as a wilderness just as the same as the tibetan highlands as a wilderness it's just one you have to swim in if you fall off the boat um and both of them took about a month uh, to accomplish and both of them had certain similarities to them in terms of hardships encountered and the solitude and the thoughts that go through your mind when you're when you're pushing your body a little bit to the limit and uh, so i thought there must be a way of combining these two stories and uh, and fortunately uh, and to this day i've always kept a diary i have 151 volumes of it back at my parents house in england and um, i was able to mine the earlier volumes of these diaries um, for uh, very good, very useful information. So pretty much everything in these books, and they are narrative nonfiction, but um, 99% exactly as they happened. Um, I had this information, this well of information I was able to uh, dive into. And the more I looked into them, the more I thought I could uh, intertwine the stories. And they sort of, they kind of, mirror each other in certain ways certain uh certain uh tribulations and trials that that were encountered are familiar on the like when i'm traveling through tibet at one point the the the, the truck i'm on uh crashes and when we're on the boat there's a storm and i've tried to put these two high points at at that's you know intertwining with each other at that same section of the of the finished book so eventually they, they actually join up and they join up in the the person of uh, uh, Claudia, who's the uh, German uh, love interest, you could say, that uh, you mentioned earlier on. Uh, and also um, a very interesting Frenchman called Charlie, who was present both in the Tibetan story and in the, uh, in the Indonesian section of the story. He's one of these chance encounters, um, these strange people that you meet at certain points in your life and they just change your fate. Uh, so I thought, no, I have to combine the two stories. But the emphasis, obviously, from the title of the book and the photographs in the book and the way that, that the boat voyage actually um, did lead to my career as a photographer, that's the, the main uh, story told. Well, let's talk about that, that boat journey. And let's talk about the boat that you took. It's, 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 it's a paraha. It's a, it's a sloop. Um, so a very small boat. Um, but what's the history behind these boats kind of in Indonesia? And I guess how big was the boat that, that you were traveling on? Yeah, well, in my research for the book, I actually unearthed some um, video footage that we took at the time. Um, very rare, very shaky and very faded. Uh, and it really it surprised me how big the boat was when you see ourselves on, aboard it on the deck. It was 70 feet long. It's 23 meters with a mast that was 60 feet high. It weighed 60 tons without any ballast. It was made entirely of teak wood with no um, metal bolts or brackets or nail in its construction. It's, it's really a, a, almost a lost art. It's one of the last boats made this way with no engine. Um, uh, the sails were <laughs> made from plastic rice sacks, unfortunately, which weren't very durable. Um, that's a concession to the modern age. Um, but in, in many ways, this boat had not changed in design from the 15th century caravels that the Portuguese used to explore the African coastline with. And in fact, their, their, their aim at that time was to find these mysterious spice islands, which 
actually we know today as Indonesia. So these, these, it was a very traditional boat with a shallow draft, so it could sail in very uh, close to the coast or up um, shallow rivers without grounding. Um, and it just had a, a wooden tiller to pull the rudder around, left or right, and it took six of, six of us to pull up the main sail, just like in these uh, you know sailing adventures from the 17th century. You see all the crew hauling up the sail. Well, you needed that many crew to haul the sails up. They're very, very heavy, especially when they're wet. So um, that was our boat. It was called the Konya Elahi, which in the local dialect translates roughly to the God Bless which I thought was the perfect name for our voyage because, um, not to give the game away, only one of us had actually sailed before, fortunately the captain, and there were seven of us on board. Um, that's, yeah, the, the, these boats were used. I should have a very interesting story behind these boats. Were, um, the, the trade winds in Indonesia blow from the east to the west, especially in September to October. So historically, for hundreds of years, um, what's known as the mosquito fleet of Bugi Prahu, these sloops, which are single-masted boats, or uh, Pinisi, which are schooners with two masts, a bit bigger, maybe 100 feet long. Um, they would load themselves up with you know, exotic produce from the Indonesian interior, things like birds of paradise feathers, beeswax, bird's nests, gold dust, tortoiseshell, sandalwood, you name it, coffee, cotton, sarong, and they would... Um, ship it into Singapore in fleets of 250 boats or more uh, up until the 1960s. So that must have been quite a sight. And the boats would not have changed in, in the manufacture and appearance in that time. And that way, we were one of the very last boats probably to ever have done this, especially without an engine. Um, and th- those boats were operated by the Boogie. The mysterious title of this of this book, um, the Boogie people are <clears throat> um, famed as pirates um, and traders. The pirate uh, sort of uh, moniker is, uh, I think, fairly uh, earned because uh, during the 17th and 18th centuries, the, the, the Boogie sailors would terrorize the fleets of the British East India Company and the Dutch East India Company, so much so that the sailors would go back and scare their children with stories of the bogeyman. <laughs> That's actually the origin of the of the uh, name of the bogeyman. They're the boogie people. Uh, so these chaps, they're much nicer these days. <laughs> they're not so threatening. Uh, Muslim people living on an island or several islands in, in the East Indian Ocean, the Flores Sea, between South Sulawesi and uh, Flores. So it's about 2,000, just under 2,000 miles from there to Singapore. Um, and this is their traditional kind of boat. I hope that answers that question. <laughs> so your sail, I mean, you sail with, you know, a very strange group of characters, um, mm. <laughs> to put it, to put it mildly. <laughs> wait, um, wait, wait, you can get really when you're out in the wilds like that. <laughs> well, I mean, but, but I guess who, like, who were these people? Who, who, who was this kind of array of mostly French, but not entirely French, um, people who decided to, to go on this voyage? Well, okay, uh, I don't speak French. So very luckily, the, the, the character I mentioned earlier on, one of the crossover characters from the Tibetan story to the, to, to the Indonesian story was this guy, Charlie, who I met on the, but just by chance, on the same day, on the same plane from Australia, from Darwin, flying into Timor. I said, oh, Charlie, really? Okay, so we started traveling together, and he and I, at the end of a long day's travel, bumped into uh, three of the French 
crew having coffee, of course, and smoking cigarettes in a, in a warong, like a little cheap cafe in Malmere in Florida. And um, they started talking in French and then for my benefit in English. And, and so without Charlie, I wouldn't have actually met these the, the, the crew. Charlie, in the end, did not join us for the voyage, but uh, I was well in with the crew by then. Um, there was Pascal, who was 28 years old. He was the oldest of us. And when you're 21, I was 21 at the time, someone who's 28 seems quite old <laughs> and uh, mature. And so you trust them with your life, as you do. Um, but he had a terrible temper. Um, so most of, or myself and most of the others were actually a little bit scared of him. It's a bit of a Captain Bly on the bounty situation. Um, there was Frank, who I'm still in touch with, actually. Um, he was actually one year younger than me. So he was the youngest of the crew, age 20. Uh, there was uh, Freddie, who I met on that night, the th- three I met on the first night, the Freddie was actually from Switzerland, spoke French and English, and his Indonesian was actually not too bad, so he could do some sort of translation work for us. And they explained that they had been to the home island of the Boogie in the middle of the, the Flores Sea, found a suitable boat to purchase, and they had this mad idea to sail it back to France in time for the bicentennial of the uh, storming of the Bastille, which would have been 14th of July 1989. So they were giving themselves a, just under a year to get back to France. And I thought, can can they be really meaning to do this? It sounds a bit... Uh, anyway, they'll go to Singapore first, and they'll sort it out from there. And I actually wanted to go to Singapore, so I thought at least we could make it to Singapore. I don't know about carrying on to France, though. Um, but we had to wait then in Maramere for about three days or so for the rest of the crew to come from France with the rest of the money to complete the purchase of the boat. There was uh, Savier, who was sort of the counterbalance to Pascal. He was also 28. Savier and Pascal had travelled across the Sahara together. They, they knew about adventure and each other, and uh, they uh, similar age. Um, so they were the adults of the crew. And then there was Bruno, who was a mountaineer, um, and uh, Gilles, Gilles Marie, who had just been fired from his post at the French Narcotics Agency, I think, from you know, uh, over abusing his situation to gain access to the product. Um, and was there anybody else? There were seven of us all together anyway. Oh, me. Yeah. They needed me along because it took six people to raise the sail and one person had to steer. And I just needed it. Honestly, like all adventures, same for the Tibetan adventure, I did it because it was the cheapest way to get from A to B. And, you know, I mean... What exactly was was life on the boat like? Um, it seems like things broke all the time. Um, seems to have been the running theme. Uh, you know, I won't, I won't, I won't spoil necessarily how the voyage, like how, like whether whether you get to your destination. Although one can probably assume. Um, the spoiler but, alert! I was alive to write about it. Yes. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> In what condition? Um, I don't know. <laughs> um, but what exactly was was kind of life on the boat like? Uh, okay. Oh my goodness. The island we were sailing from had, to start with, um, had very little to, to stock up with. Uh, it was it had no postal service, no banks, no mains electricity, only only battery power stored in car batteries, um, uh, no toilet paper, nothing. So um, we just bought up local products such as huge bananas, uh, local calabamuda, which are the young coconuts with a lot of juice inside them, um, because we realised. Uh, Hydration was going to be an issue. Uh, we had well well water, which we pulled up bucket by bucket and filled a 250-litre barrel, lashed that to the mast. The mast still looked like the tree that it was uh, 
that it was fashioned from had notches on it and everything. So it was very, very, we could have been basically in a, in a different century and you wouldn't know the difference. Um, we had to, I had to actually, uh, along with Bruno, load the, the hold with uh, ballast because the boat looked very beautiful sitting out of the water like that, but it was very unstable. So to keep the boat, it's meant to lo- ride low in the water and let the waves wash over it. So we diligently took by sandpan two tons of, of sand and rice sacks from the shore to the boat. And still the boat was floating way out of the water. It actually needed 20 tons to, to bring it down. Uh, and so we failed in that task. Consequently, we had a beautiful boat, but we, we bobbed around so much in the waves. It was actually quite dangerous. Um, life on board we didn't actually have arguments which is amazing considering seven grown men in close confines without much food water tobacco coffee anything uh, i think we were just too tired and scared most of the time to even get angry um we had very 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 and you might get onto this later i'm not sure but very basic navigational equipment um we had my map as a tourist map of southeast asia and I was slightly surprised nobody else had thought to bring a map along. Um, so I was lucky I had that. We had a compass. And uh, Pascal had bought this really flashy and expensive sextant. Um, but then we found out later on he had the wrong uh, chronological charts. For, they were for the Northern Hemisphere, and we were in just about in the Southern Hemisphere for most of our voyage. So they weren't much use. And, and he made a thing of every day at noon standing on the burning deck and taking the sextant readings like a pirate captain, but it never really, we never really knew where we were most of the time. It was dead reckoning. Uh, we learned to navigate by the stars. Some of the boogie sailors, the original crew, taught us you know, to look for certain stars, one that will point to Surabaya, one that will point to Singapore. You know. uh, and it's actually very useful it, on a clear night. And just kind of keep the mast to either side of a star head for it and hope that you don't hit into any islands or anything in, in, in um, that get in the way. And we went for you know, the first five days or so, we're seeing nothing, no land, no aeroplanes, nothing. We could have been the survivors of some biblical flood and the world had ended and we wouldn't have known. It was amazing. Um, and you mentioned uh, conditions. Well, very sparse. We had a cabin, <clears throat> but the cabin is not some luxury thing that you can imagine from looking at a yacht manual these days. It was uh, three feet high uh, without any windows, just, a, just like a shelter bolted onto, uh, not bolted, just uh, sort of constructed on the, the top of the deck. So we had a hardwood deck to sleep on. And when you get up too soon, you bang your back on the top of the deck or your head and covered with bruises and scars from from bashing into the roof of the cabin, it was so low. It was just somewhere to hide from the sun, really. And when you're crossing the equator slowly, that's something that you appreciate having as a, a bit of shade. Um, the water I mentioned turned very brackish towards the end of the voyage, but there was we had to ration it just for for drinking with. So showers were, were taken from buckets of seawater. Uh, all the washing up of uh, any cutlery was done in seawater showers when it rained you had a shower basically and we had three chickens we bought the chickens because they didn't have many eggs in the market on the day that we left we bought all those eggs and then we bought the three chickens and some food for them um i don't want to uh you know get any animal rights groups on to me but not too many of the chickens were left by the time we arrived in Singapore. <laughs> and the French are pretty good at it. They, oh, there's something about the French. They were all from this town in Normandy called Evreux. 
uh, and I've since subsequently been there to visit Frank. And uh, it's a strange town. It's not near the sea at all. It's in the flatlands. Maybe a place where dreams can grow because there's nothing else to do there. And so they were all pretty close-knit crew. And they actually knew how to cook quite well, too. So there was me worrying about, oh, no, the poor soul of our white chicken that we've just sacrificed. And they were already thinking of what sauces to make with it, with the remaining garlic and what have you. So the French and the English are quite quite different in that way, <laughs> I found out. So let's let's pivot to, to your trip to, to Tibet. Um, you know, the region, I think, was very popular with backpackers. I think Chinese rules now have killed that a little, a lot. Um, but, um, but you know, how was Tibet then kind of different to, um, to Tibet now? I mean, like when, when you were traveling, what was that, what was that travel like? Oh, I mean, I know you're going to go onto this later about the golden era, but for Tibet mm-hmm. and China in general, the late eighties was an incredible opportunity to see a part of the world that had actually been cut off since the 1930s. The, you know, you have all these adventures, people like uh, Peter Fleming, who traveled across China by camel in 1936 to get to India. And then after that, what did you have? The, 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 the Cultural Revolution, and Civil War before that, and <laughs> World War II before that. And the whole region was, was totally cut off to, to even to Chinese people to go to. And the first time it really opened up was with this thawing of the Cold War and the uh, relations after Nixon went to America and things, uh, sorry, Nixon went to China with Kissinger and things slowly started to normalize. So by the mid 80s, you could travel to Tibet as a backpacker. There were still restrictions. I mean, the road that I took from Lhasa to Chengdu was actually officially off limits. Um, But if I hid myself in the back of a pilgrim truck that was leaving the town and the Tibetans in the truck sort of realized that, that, that that's what I was doing and they gathered around me to hide me from the eyes of the uh, Chinese uh, security guards on the border at the bridge leaving Lhasa and it was early in the morning, they were sleepy. I got out and jumped off the truck and just carried on walking and then you basically don't meet anyone. For, I was hitchhiking in the backs of Jfang trucks for many days, gradually losing weight and <laughs> getting dysentery and what have you, you know what I mean? It's uh, not luxury travel by any means. So Tibet at that time was, if you were in Lhasa or some of a, a couple of the monasteries surrounding it, they were open and uh, it was a wonderful time to be there. You could mix with the locals and chat and talk and no problems whatsoever. Um, I, I arrived there actually across the Qinghai Plateau from uh, Dunhuang, where they, you have the Buddhist uh, the Buddhist um, caves um, and that again you could do it there was nothing stopping you it was just uh, painful public transport on in, in a uh, you know a rough coach kind of thing for about a day and a half two days um, across a bland dry dusty desert if you want to do that then you could get to Lhasa there was nothing stopping you um, conditions were very very rough uh, however you know uh, as soon as you leave Lhasa the <laughs> Um, I hope people haven't been eating, but if you, you know, the general toilet was found by smelling where it was, and oh, um, basically at the bottom of the drop would be a lot of uh, maggots being being cultivated in in the uh, mulch, and then that was used to fertilise the vegetables. So it's very agricultural, very rural. I remember the smell very well. <laughs> um, 
everything was mud and dust. Today, I believe that road that I traveled on, which was just dirt and mud, is now a sort of a four-lane highway much of the way, um, which would really, I think, sort of destroy the feeling of being away from the rest of the world that I certainly had. You know, I'd never been that far removed from from my own kind of people, <laughs> Western faces. I didn't see, apart from Charlie, who I bumped into, I didn't see anyone for three weeks, over three weeks. Um, and I didn't speak much Chinese. I just spoke a little uh, and very little Tibetan. So that, uh, you didn't really need to speak much. People understood <laughs> you were here. We don't want you here. Let's, we'll be nice to you, but please do move on, that kind of thing. Uh, now, um, I guess you could pay to join a very expensive tour. I think visas are hard to get, um, but you can do it. If you've got a lot of money to spend, you could stay at the Holiday Inn Hotel in Lasso uh, and have a boring, bland experience in a, a sort of a playground like a Disneyland, Disneyland Tibet. Um, the real Tibet's still there, I'm sure. If you get off that main road and go up a valley, you'll suddenly be back in the late 1980s again. I'm quite sure that still exists but you can't really get to it as easily as i did so i was very lucky they closed down after after like 1988 i think there was some sort of troubles in tibet and uh, that window that short window you know, pico Aya was there didn't it wasn't he, he wrote a book about uh, backpacking in asia and one of his uh, chapters was in tibet and i realized oh hey i, I was there in the same month or the month before the month after him it was that window that was it and then it's gone again never been the same since <laughs> so you have to uh, what i'm trying to do with this book is to encourage younger gen a younger generation who's, who was my age then uh, who you know i was 20 so 20 any 20 year old today just take a leap of faith go for it because what you can do now might not be available in 30 years time or 10 years time um you know there's a particular thing that happens in 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 your book um where it's kind of like a reminder, like, oh, right, of course. Like, this is this is pre-email, pre pre-phones. Um, the idea that you can't easily find out where someone is. Um, and that came through when, um, when, when Claudia was it, you, you go to the post office and you find a letter from Claudia. And at the, in the letter, she says, by the way, I photocopied this and sent this to every single major Asian capital because I have no idea where you're going to be. And that was the player where we were like, oh, of course, <laughs> of course. <laughs> like how how would how would you know where someone's going to be? Um, and so I guess kind of like case to talk about, about like 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 this is this is kind of the still the world, or it, it, it's kind of this, this strange point where like the world is globalizing. You can travel around the world, but it's still not quite um, as fully connected as it is today. Um, I wonder who I can just just talk about. You know how people stay in touch with each other. How do these kind of informal networks, traditions, and practices for all these these travelers? How do they kind of arise, and how do people stay in touch? Ooh, that's, a, that's a deep pool to dive into. Um, well, okay, you allude to that particular letter that the cloud. It could still be out there somewhere in the you know Kuala Lumpur post office in some dusty uh, drawer somewhere. There was there was a and still is actually a system called Post Restant, uh, where post offices would hold letters for a couple of months, <clears throat> um, 
And it was a tradition for all of us, really, all of us traveling to go to the general post office, every town, the first thing you did, really, and uh, show them your passport or tell them your name and look through that relevant section of the of the drawer of letters that would would, would be presented to you. Often on the way, you'd find, oh, hey, here's one from, you know, from Charlie or from, like, in this case, from Claudia or other friends. And you realize that either, you know, maybe they were coming into town because people had been sending letters to, to, to them as well. If you saw a letter that was addressed to them rather than from them to you. So you could sort of get an idea of who was around. Um, backpacker guest houses were also pretty good back then um we didn't have the luxury of individual rooms everyone was all in the same dormitory together and you tended to well okay guidebooks this was at a time when even lonely planet was only in its sort of second or third edition and they didn't have many areas covered either it was the infancy of lonely planet so even to have a guidebook was something unusual um Usually you'd find somebody and then you'd photocopy <laughs> copious you know, maps and of towns and where the guest, cheap guest houses are and keep them with you stapled together. Uh, and if you met someone in one guest house, you say, well, I'm going to be, uh, you know, in, I'll be in Beijing uh, in three weeks time. I'll see you at this and this guest house if you're there. And you'd, you'd have this loose sort of association in, in your mind of who, who was where. Um, the absolute best way, to get information, our our social media of the day, our Google of the day was basically just interrogating a, a, a traveler who had just come into the guest house from the town you wanted to go to or had crossed the border you were just about to cross and find out what's the condition, who do I have to bribe there, <laughs> what's, um, what's the weather like, what guest house do I stay in. Um, so it was nice because people interacted. They didn't hide behind you know, social media or bookings.com or something to protect them from having to deal with horrible, dirty humans. You just got into it. And, um, you know, the friends I met in those days, some of them are still my best friends now. I would really miss that at this age in my, at this stage in my life. I'm in my early fifties now. If, uh, I, I hadn't made those connections, you know, some of my best friends I met in guest houses in Hong Kong, uh, in Indonesia, I'm still in touch with them because you have this habit of, staying in touch as well you know if uh, <laughs> you've gone through all the hard stuff you know so I, I miss that a lot because i find people very insular you have all the information in the world now i have access to everything and people are just looking at mobile phones uh so having a nice conversation <laughs> well you mentioned i mean you mentioned kind of like it's maybe maybe kind of close off our conversation uh, but you mentioned kind of one of the the things you wanted to do with this book was to encourage younger people um, to kind of make the plunge, to kind of go traveling, and to go traveling in this very unstructured, maybe unsanitized, I mean, in a positive way, um, manner. Um, but I guess, you know, and you, and you kind of hinted at this already, kind of like, is 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 travel, and it's been particularly kind of backpacking, um, is it different now um, than, than it was in your time and you know not not to kind of devolve into like oh these kids today with their phones um but 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 because is is it different now just because the world is more connected the world is more um is more globalized and integrated but also in some way some of the uh some of the old divisions are coming back you know we, we already talked about kind of china and the rules about going to tibet for example just oh, is back different cyclical aren't they like that yeah, yeah. But just yeah. is it different now than it was during your time? At the base of it, 
no, because you can still, if you have the will, pick up, put everything you own into a backpack and just go for it if you really want to. I would have to say, however, um, <laughs> why bother in some ways? Because people can see what the rest of the world is like now. When I set off traveling, there was this amazing will to discover what the world was like. All I knew was what the topography looked like in a Reader's Digest Atlas of the World. I could see the Himalayas in my mind from a two-dimensional map with a red line running across it, a thin red line, which I then actually did travel along. And then I found out that it was not flat at all. It was 5,000 meter passes and it took a long time and there were landslides and trucks crashing and all this kind of stuff. But I had no idea. I wanted to bring that to life. Now, if you want to, you can go to that same road on Google Earth and see it from every single angle in real time. So in some ways I'd have to say, well, what's the reason for that travel now possibly people leave for a different reason um and i wouldn't know what that reason is because when you're you have a very short uh, narrow window of opportunity when you're young you're either going to do this or you're not going to do this because you get sucked into a, a full-time a proper job not dispatch writing you get sucked into a career you get relationships all this stuff i wasn't burdened by that i'd left if, just before that kind of stuff would kick in and um, so I, I was completely free. If you allow yourself to, to wait a bit too long, thinking, oh, I need a bit more money before I set off, feel a bit more safe about it, it that, that might pass you by, and then you may never actually get away, or not in the way you wanted to. Uh, and and I, by that, I mean traveling alone as well, rather than going with your girlfriend on a holiday to Greece or something. Um, I think, yeah, probably the experiences people have will be in the same vein, but they will be different. Same, 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 but different. So you, you can get away, but, but uh, what you find might be different. It might be disappointing in some ways, uh, but then again, maybe not. Uh, if you're young, you will see things in a different way. Uh, and people act, to, act towards you in a different way. People want to help people who are young. They forgive people who are young. When you get older, you get less of that sympathy <laughs> and understanding. You have to, you've already, you're supposed to have sorted it out. I, I haven't, but uh, I'm, I'm an odd one in that way. I'm still, in my mind, I'm still 20 years old, traveling around and backpacking. Um, <laughs> some adventures stay with you for life, I have to say. And these two adventures are ones that have stayed with me for life. I've, I told them enough times to my to my family and friends that eventually it was like, oh, just write them down, for God's sake. <laughs> so this in one, in one very basic way, that's why I did put them down onto onto paper there also is it's also the beginning of a series of books of my of my life and travels uh so you have to start at the beginning um and i would say that's the advice for every traveler really just start one step after the other take that first step and see where it leads well i think that's a great place to end your interview with chris stowers author of boogie nights um Chris, I actually have two final questions for you, which are, uh, first of all, where can people find your work? Not just this book, but but all of your work. And number two, um, what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be? You already mentioned kind of you're your starting this, this like a series of books. Um, but kind of what, what, what do you think comes next? Okay, well, um, I'm not a great uh, social media person. Uh, that might have come out in this interview somehow. <laughs> but I do have a, a pretty good website that a friend of mine, uh, Sonata's, put together called uh, chrisstowers.com. And there, not only do you get links to the book and other books, I've done lots of photo books before, but not um, 
word books, written the proper books like this one, <laughs> um, and uh, my, my various uh, types of photography that I do. Um, if you just type in the name Boogie Nights now, B-U-G-I-S-N-I-G-H-T-S, it comes up first search on Amazon, which is quite nice, and you click on that and you can find out more about the book. Um, as for the next step, uh, while well, I'm still a working photographer, so I have various uh, various assignments I have to work on to pay the bills. Um, but in the back of my mind now, there's this, uh, especially since this book has been published, um, to get the next volume out, that's a, it's a priority. It's actually written. Uh, it just needs to be edited, knocked into shape, which takes some time. <laughs> I'm finding it's a very slow process, writing and then finally getting in to, into the hands of the reading public is, is a totally different ballgame. Um, and there'll be a volume three and possibly volume four, but maybe by the end of my life we'll, we can come back and talk about that one. Um, but yeah, my next trip will be to uh, the UK. I need to go back to Europe and uh, do some shooting over there, see my agent, and uh, just keep on going, really, as I have been doing since uh, I started in photography back in 1989 after this... Uh, <laughs> After the, the, my first story was published from the photographs I took on board the, uh, the Kone Alahi on, on the voyage. It's amazing how careers just get started. I still actually don't call it a career. It's just my life. It's just stuff, stuff I do. Uh, ongoing. <laughs> well, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at BookReviewsAsia. That's reviews, plural. And you can find many more off interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for a special anniversary episode with authors from the Boss Fight book series, works exploring the world of retro video games like Legend of Zelda, Majora's Mask, and Parappa the Rapper. But before then, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, thanks very much, Nicholas. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here.